This is Wilderness and Wildlife, presented by the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with wildlife and wilderness advocates relating to the unique natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands of the West and all across America. I'm your host, Jay Shell. Today, we are interviewing Jerry Emery, following research and work based out of both Latin America and the western U.S. in the 1980s, Jerry spent a year at the Charles Darwin Research Station in the Galapagos Islands and an equivalent amount of time in the Brazilian Pantanal for grad work. He became a professional writer and communications consultant. Jerry worked at the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation in San Francisco in the early 2000s, followed by 10 years at the California State Parks Foundation. He's a graduate of Stanford and UC Berkeley and lives with his family in Mill Valley, California. Jerry has written dozens of magazine articles on the environment, conservation, and science with a focus on Latin America and the Western U.S. He is the author of five books, including the San Francisco Bay Shoreline Guide and the Monterey Bay Shoreline Guide, and he served twice as a board member of the George Wright Society. His latest book is about George Melendez Wright, who was the first wildlife biologist for the National Park Service back in the 1930s. So welcome, Jerry. It's great to be talking with you. Uh, well, thank you very much, Jay. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. How long have you been writing books, Jerry? Well, I uh, started writing full-time in the mid-'80s, 1980s, and um uh, was a freelance writer basically, um, and, and did a lot of, uh, magazine work. And, uh, my first book was actually in, not until 1995, and that was the, uh, the, the, uh, San Francisco Bay Shoreline Guide uh-huh. that you, that you mentioned. Uh-huh. And then, um, you know, I kept writing freelance, uh, a lot of magazine articles and then interspersed with books, uh, some children's books and some other books off and on for years, uh, until I kind of backed into, working um, uh, as a communications expert for a series of nonprofits and the organizations that, that you mentioned. Uh-huh. What, what, what initially got you interested in, in being a writer? Well, you know, that's, that's a good question. Um, I actually, when I was at grad school in Berkeley. I was in a, a doctorate program in geography, and, um, and I was surrounded by uh, some very unique people that entered in my class that I'm still friends with, and um, there was really an emphasis on writing and um, uh, observing the natural world and other phenomena and then recording it and writing it, not only for academic journals, but also outside uh, in, in popular publications. And that really um, kind of uh, planted the seed um, for me to start thinking about writing and, and pursuing it. So the first book you wrote was the one about San Francisco Bay, right? Correct. They, uh, the California Coastal Conservancy, uh, which is based out of Oakland, California, right. was, uh, was heading up a, a, a program, a project to build a trail all the way around the San Francisco Bay. And it's almost completed. At the time I wrote this, it was maybe 60 or 70 Wrote that book, sixty or seventy percent done, uh-huh. and um, so it was a, a joint uh, book with the University of California Press and the Coastal Conservancy, and it was a great project because I got to either run—I could still run back then—or ride my bike or walk, uh, hike, 
the entire trail. Uh, and I, you know, I grew up in Palo Alto, just just that, south of San Francisco, so I knew the Bay Shoreline, but I really discovered it uh, during the during um, during the doing the research, the field work for that book. But you've also done some uh, writing, or, or at least some work, of, about Latin or South America. Uh, talk about that. Uh, you bet. Um, so when I was in graduate school, I well, first of all, stepping back a little bit, uh, you know, I, I said I grew up in Palo Alto uh, in, in California here uh, when they still taught languages free uh, in elementary and junior high and high school and. Spanish was the principal one, and so I grew up taking a lot of Spanish, um, fairly fairly fluent, and of course there's a very rich um, Spanish and Mexican history here in California. And uh, so when I was in graduate school, I was interested in going to Brazil uh, to study some environmental issues for a variety of reasons, and and so I learned Brazilian Portuguese and went to the Brazilian Pantanal for about a year to study study that amazing wildlife area and development issues for about a year and wrote up my master's. I never finished uh, the complete program. After my master's, I got hired by the Nature Conservancy's Latin American program to go move to Galapagos for a year, and I couldn't turn that down. All right. So then I lived and worked out of the Charles Darwin Research Station for a year on a uh, Basically a uh, fundraising campaign. I'm not a fundraiser, but I was there to be the representative and give talks, bilingual talks at the research station, help facilitate donors when they came down. So that was an incredible experience. My wife and I were newly newly married just before I went down, and then she joined me. So we spent our first year in the Galapagos Islands, which is pretty unique. Have you been involved in some other conservation projects? Well, in... um, when I came back from Galapagos, the Nature Conservancy's Latin American program split off and became uh, Conservation International, which at the time was only about 15 people. But now, of course, it's a gigantic, uh, very large international, very impactful organization. So they actually hired me to go down to the Yucatan Peninsula for a couple months and work in the Cien Con Biosphere Reserve. So I, I also did that for a while, working with a nonprofit, trying to help preserve in that area, even though it was dedicated to biosphere reserve, oftentimes in Latin America and other parts of the world, what they call sometimes a paper park. So it's a park on paper, but on the ground, they don't have a lot of resources and they need assistance getting resources. And then also with some advice on management sometimes. So that was early days, you know, way back in the late, late eighties. So uh, your latest book is titled George Melendez Wright. The Fight for Wildlife and Wilderness in the National Parks. So why did you want to write about George uh, Wright? Well, truth be told, I'm married to one of his granddaughters. Uh, (laughs) And uh, we met on the Berkeley campus and fell in love and eventually got married. And it was through talking with her and her her mom, my mother-in-law now of almost 40 years, Mm -hmm. uh, one of George Wright's daughters, that I learned about George Wright. And he was already fairly well-known within the Park Service. There was an organization named after him in, in 1980, which we can talk about later. So I, so the family, you know, Wright had this spectacular early career within the Park Service, very unique upbringing, which we can talk about. But he died when he was only 31. But he left behind a lot of field notes, a lot of presentations, correspondence, and those were held by the family. So I had access to those. And so I started thinking that 
you know, wait, like 30 years ago, I started thinking, while I was doing all the freelance work and some of the other books, you know, to help pay the bills, and then eventually when I started working in San Francisco, 9 to 5, I was always thinking in the back of my mind that I needed to write this book about George Wright. And I would have periods of time when when I had some time to dive into certain aspects of, of Wright's career and life and uh, go into archives, hire researchers in different parts of the country to look up specific things. And I slowly began to formulate a book idea in, in my mind. And then in 2020, I had the time to do it. And I spent an amazing week in the National Archives just south of San Francisco. They're called the San Bruno Archives. Yeah, right. And it was just, it was a treasure trove of information about that time and correspondence. And then soon, soon thereafter, the pandemic hit. And all the archives and all the libraries, everything closed, as you know. Jeez. And I would, but I was lucky. It was just serendipity that I was able to do the bulk of my research before everything shut. Yeah. Uh, and um, then it was just a matter of getting down to it. So he grew up in San Francisco and a very unique family. His, his mom was Salvadoran and his, his father was uh, came from a long line of steamship captains uh, in San Francisco that, that moved out here during the gold rush. And unfortunately, by the time he was eight or so, both of his parents had died. And he was raised by a great aunt. He had two brothers, but they moved back to El Salvador to be raised by the family there. His mom came from a very extensive family, the Melendez family. So he was raised in a bilingual household. His great aunt was on the right side and did not speak Spanish, but there was always Salvadoran relatives coming through the house and staying with him. And he just took to nature early. His gateway was birding. He loved birding. He was born in 1904, so... So San Francisco, you know, back in the day was actually still kind of a wild place, like it is today. He was able, his aunt, his great aunt, uh, he just called Auntie, gave him free reign. And he was able to explore and, you know, go to school. He's a very good student. And he actually created the first Audubon Club at Lowell High School in San Francisco. No kidding. And was the president and, and put together field trips. So he was always very much interested in wildlife when he was young. And this was back in, what, the 20s? Well, he was born in 1904, and he was exploring California in the East Bay back then because you could still take a ferry pretty easily over to the East Bay from San Francisco. Uh, during the teens, you know, late teens, and uh, he was also a Boy Scout and taught botany and birding and natural history at a Boy Scout camp in the East Bay. And he also joined the Sierra Club where he eventually met Ansel Adams, uh, was a friend of his, and he uh, participated in the in the high country trips, they're called, uh-huh. where every summer the Sierra Club would put together a trip in the Sierra with sometimes a couple hundred people, and they would hike. There was two sessions uh, a month each, and they would take off, and they had packers, and they had cooks, and they would just go up and explore and bag peaks and just have an amazing time. And he did that several times as a, as a very young person. And then he went to Berkeley at the age of 16. <laughs> That's pretty young. So what did he study at Berkeley? This was kind of uh, amazing to me or, or perplexing. He declared uh, forestry at first. And it didn't make sense to me for someone that was, I mean, he knew his botany, but he was really a birder and a naturalist, self-taught naturalist. But I did some research and I talked to people from 
the Forest History Society, and uh, they said it made complete sense to them because at that time in the United States, forestry was part of what was called the progressive movement, which I mean, I'm no specialist on this, but basically it was an effort to use science to solve societal problems um, across very many different areas. And so it was part of that. And also it was doing a little bit of conservation work and recreation work, the Forest Service. So it wasn't just all extractive. So he studied under one of the leading American forestry professors at the time, a guy named Walter Mulford. But he also, importantly, spent a lot of time over in Berkeley's Museum of Vertebrate Zoology, studying underneath Joseph Grinnell and a younger guy named Joseph Dixon. And so between the three of those, those were his mentors at Berkeley, uh-huh. and they really shaped the future of the young, the young George Wright. You can imagine three very knowledgeable, seasoned men for a guy that didn't have a father, and so they became very important to him. Did he transition uh, from primarily studying birds to studying mammals or other kinds of wildlife? Well, back then, it's very different than it is today, uh, Jay. Back then people were truly trained across various disciplines. So not only was he a really good botanist, excuse me, but um, even though birds were his primary love, his first love, he was also a mammalogist. He served on the the American Mammalogical Society's board. And so he was trained across the board. Uh And because of that, he had a very expansive view and understanding of the natural world when he went out and, and did field work. He realized that a lot of the animals were dependent on certain plants and, and vice versa. And what happens when there's a lot of overgrazing, what happens after a fire, uh, all, those, all those things are all, all tied together. And I think that really Joseph Grinnell, the, the director of the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology, was probably really key to Wright's knowledge and understanding and, and view because it came, it came right from Grinnell. So what was his, after graduating, uh, what was his first job? Well, uh, actually, I, I have to mention just one thing, that while he was at Berkeley, so his first summer, he went to Alaska. He went up to Inside Passage. His second summer, he spent on a Sierra Club high trip uh, in Kings Canyon. It wasn't a national park yet. And then the next two summers, he spent, uh, he had an old beat-up Model T Ford, and he got in that Ford with a couple friends, and drove around the West going to national parks. He was already interested in national parks. That was Dixon and, and Thompson? That was Dixon and Thompson? No, that was, that was when they were all in the Park Service a couple of years oh, later. Okay. This was like, you know, his buddies during, during the summer uh, yeah. when he was at Berkeley. So he was kind of practicing for his future role uh, in the Park Service. Uh, he didn't probably realize that, but... So he explored the West in and, and that Model T, which you can imagine back then, I mean... It, there were, there were very few paved roads, and a Model T is just a, a machine on top of really big bicycle tires. So they, they had they had flats nonstop and all sorts of mechanical problems, but they had a, had a great time. But when he graduated, uh, he he went right into the Park Service in 1927. He um, became an assistant naturalist at uh, Yosemite, and his aunt uh, they were inseparable. And she was by that time she was in her late 70s, early 80s and very close relationship, and she moved into the Iwani Hotel, which had just been completed, so she could live close to George Wright. Right. And she stayed, She lived there for about a year until she passed away. So Wright started 
in the Park Service in 27 and began learning the ropes of giving nature talks and nature walks and, and just learning the administration yeah. of what, what it takes to work in the Park Service. But he began formulating this idea from his travels and from what he saw, he knew that the parks were completely out of whack. You know, they were feeding bears, including grizzly bears and Yellowstone at bear shows. They had these ramshackle zoos in the parks of wildlife that either was, you know, just decrepit. And at the time, in Yosemite, there was a big corral in the middle of the meadows with tule elk in them that lived there for about seven or eight years. So he began formulating this idea and running it past some of his mentors that what needed to be done was a scientific-based wildlife survey of the big western parks in order to inform management, to come up with a series of management ideas to help wildlife and other resources in the parks, because no one had ever had ever done that. And so he convinced the director, Horace Albright, Wright and his aunt had some resources, so at the time he offered to pay for the first two years, and he paid the salary of Ben Thompson, his colleague, and Joseph Dixon. They got a, a special truck made for field work, and they took off and did that for three seasons in a row. He convinced uh, Horace Albright, I believe, to survey wildlife in the parks. That's correct. He was the director from 1929 for about four or five years, although he had been Mather's uh, assistant, you know, since the creation of the Park Service in, in 1916. And then they, after their field work, they produced two classic volumes. They became to be known as Fauna 1 and Fauna 2. And that really changed how the Park Service began looking at wildlife in the parks. Because up to that point, uh, what historian Dick Sellers he used to call it facade management. That's, that's what was going on in the parks. It was all about putting on a show for the tourists. But Wright and his colleagues saw that everything was just out of balance. And he also knew that, like, for example, predator control was, was out of control. Mm-hmm. The, the U.S. Biological Survey, and I looked this up um, by going back and reading all of their annual reports. The U.S. Biological Survey, Jay, get this. This is like a staggering thing to think about. Between 1916 and 1928, in the Western United States, and sometimes, oftentimes, working with the Park Service and the Forest Service, the U.S. Biological Survey killed 8,370 wolves, almost 350,000 coyotes, 1,800 mountain lions, 37,000 bobcats and lynxes, and about 1,300 bears. And those are only the official numbers. They say that those are just the bodies they could count, and that a lot of the animals that have been poisoned, for example, wandered off and they didn't count those. So the wildlife landscape of the Western United States was had been completely changed, and it was all because of, you know, livestock and, and agricultural interests uh, that were just began booming in, in uh, the Western U.S. from, like, the 1880s on. Did Wright spend his whole Park Service career in Yosemite? Well, he was there for a couple of years until 1929, and after he convinced the director to agree to approve the, the wildlife survey, then they kind of became an independent unit. They weren't tied to a given park. So they were still, they were all park, National Park Service employees, but they worked independently. They had an office 
um, actually in Hillgard Hall on the Berkeley campus, because Berkeley has a long history mm-hmm. with the National Park Service. So they would spend their winters on the Berkeley campus, uh, and then their spring, summer, early fall uh, out in the field. So they were constantly traveling. Ah. But then eventually, Wright also had the director agree to create uh, a wildlife division and to make it formal. And when that happened, they eventually wanted the office moved to Washington, D.C. And so Wright eventually moved to Washington, D.C. and ran the wildlife division out of the main office. And uh, I think he got a presidential appointment to a commission. Well, um, actually, yeah, he, he, he received a couple. In, in addition to his, his hat as the as the director of the Wildlife Division, um, after uh, President Roosevelt was elected and came on board in '33, uh, uh, he he did two things. One, in 1934, he appointed Wright to the National Resources Board um, for about six months to help them write up a large report about recreation and parks in the United States and how, at the time, during the Depression, right, um, people could get out and recreate and enjoy parks more. Uh-huh. So that was really interesting because it expanded Wright's view on what parks were. They weren't just national parks. And also, that's when he really started thinking about wilderness and advocating for preserving wilderness. Um, but towards the end of his career, also in... Um, you know, then he became very active in a lot of, you know, conferences and doing a lot of writing. And in February of 1936, he was appointed to an international uh, delegation uh, along with uh, their Mexican colleagues to study the entire southern border uh, and analyze it for central parks, uh, wildlife refuges, and other types of preservation uh, activities. And so he went down with a couple of colleagues, including a dear friend of his um, uh, named Roger Toll, who was the superintendent of Yellowstone at the time. Mm-hmm. And they spent about four or five days, about five days, in the Big Bend area. Big Bend also was not a national park yet. And they would crisscross. I mean, think about this, you know, today, right, um, compared to today's politics and border issues. Uh-huh. They crisscrossed the Rio Grande a, a bunch with their Mexican colleagues, went into Mexico, in, into the, the Del Carmen Mountains, and and all throughout what is now uh, Big Bend. And we're, we're thinking about creating an international peace park. That's actually what they called it, just like the Waterton Glacier Park uh, in, that, that crosses over the border in Canada, uh, from Canada to the U.S., which uh-huh. was already in existence at the time. And uh, so they had a very positive meeting with their colleagues and some great photos from that time. And unfortunately, on their way to the next stop in Arizona, uh, Roger Toll and George Wright were driving together and, and died in a in a head-on car crash um, in New Mexico. And so his, his stellar uh, brief career was over, but his impact was his legacy you know, continued for, right. for well to this day. Was he the first uh, to uh, suggest that park management should be based on science? Yeah, you know, he's often he's oftentimes 
uh, called the Father of Science in the National Parks. Uh-huh. Um, and and for sure that was his goal was science based management decisions. Uh, but you know there were there were the, the Park Service had had naturalists, but they weren't trained as rigorously as as right. And also there were there were scientists in other bureaus and and agencies also in, in the Forest Service. He he worked closely with some some people in the Forest Service, including a guy named William Rush, who helped him study elk in Yellowstone, and also um, Bob Marshall, who um, I believe he had a uh, you know as in the Bob Marshall Wilderness, right, um, and who helped create the Wilderness Society. I believe he had a PhD in forestry, Bob Marshall, and at the time. And, and they were they were colleagues and good friends. Um, and at the time, Bob Marshall was the head forester for what they called at the time the Indian Service. Uh-huh. Uh, and so they oftentimes uh, collaborated, especially in the Southwest, on on issues. Um, well, uh, believe it or not, we're running out of time. But uh, uh, there's a Ken Burns uh, documentary, I think, that was that featured uh, George Wright. Is that right? That's correct, uh, from, from years ago, and there's a nice little, I helped them uh, put that together, um, and there's a nice little blurb in there about right. Uh-huh. If people want to, you know, find out more, um, this book was published by the University of, Cal- uh, the University of Chicago Press, and, um, and they can find out more about it there or on my website, which is just jerryemery.com. Oh, I'm happy okay. to answer any questions. Um, people can contact me through that website. And you've and, searched... Um, you served twice as board member of the George Wright Society. Uh, tell us about the society. Yeah, you bet. So in, in the 1980, um, you know, the, the history of what happened to science and biologists in the Park Service is a whole other show. Um, between when Wright died, World War II, the 50s and 60s, 70s. But in 1980, two of the head biologists in the Park Service looked around at all the issues they were dealing with and and they knew about Wright, and they had read Fauna 1 and 2, and they thought that what the issues that Wright was dealing with in the 1930s were still in existence. Uh-huh. And so they created the George Wright Society. Um, it's uh, two biologists named Bob Lynn and Ted uh, Studia. And um, to, to bring together not only wildlife biologists, but resource managers within the Park Service and other agencies um, to work on science-based management and work on science and, and advocate for science within the Park Service and other agencies. Uh-huh. And um, so it's been in existence since 1980, and it's also it's, it's grown to, to incorporate cultural issues and um, issues of uh, indigenous people and, and all sorts of other issues. It's really quite a, a vibrant organization with an amazing board of directors uh, and so I was very proud to serve on that board um, twice, uh, boy, and maybe in the oh, that's great, maybe 15, 15, 20 years ago. So the name of the book is uh, George Melendez Wright, and uh, I assume it's available from Amazon and other booksellers. That's correct. George Melendez Wright: uh, The Fight for Wildlife and Wilderness in the National Parks, and you can find it on Amazon. And again, uh, it's a great story. I think, but I'm a little biased. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it was uh, initially published, uh, what, this past April? Past April by the University of Chicago Press, uh-huh. correct. Okay, great. 
Well, thank you very much, Sherry. It's been great to talk to you, and uh, hope people go out and buy the book. So, it's been our, a pleasure. Thank you, Jay. Our guest today has been Jerry Emery, the author of the recently published George Melendez Wright Biography. This has been Wilderness and Wildlife, a presentation of the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. To hear more of these half-hour interviews, go online to js-wilderness.com and see additional features of our website. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jay Shell.